Good morning. Would you take God's word and turn to Matthew chapter 5. For those visiting with us, we have been doing a series on the sermon that Jesus gave in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And what he's really talking about is daily life, how we are to live. And so in the last several weeks, we've been going over, well, you have heard, but I say. And this is the sixth illustration of how God's intent differed from a self-serving, narcissistic, religious system. The context is he was talking to the Pharisees. Of course, the context broader than that, he was talking to the world, saying that we as kingdom of God followers march to a different drumbeat. Now in this passage, we're looking at verses 43 through 48. I want to begin with verse 48, the last, then we'll move back. Matthew 5, 48. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I just want to remind us that we gather here and we live and we worship to an audience of one. Now for some, that audience of one is me, myself, and I. They do everything around their core ethics about what they think, what they feel, how they see this world. But what Christ is saying here is that our center is God and God alone. That's who we focus on. That is our foundation. That is our anchor. That is our life support. It really doesn't matter how you want to describe it. He is saying that we are followers of God through Jesus Christ. Now later in this sermon, he says something like this. Found in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the question we begin with this morning is, and the, the question we begin every single day with is, what can I do today to bring glory to God? How can I honor him? How can I love him with my mind, my heart, my words, with my hands? And just before that, he talked about singleness of hearts. Why? Well, he said it this way. No one can serve two masters. If you try that, you're going to hate the one. You're going to love the other. You're going to despise the one. You're going to be devoted to the other. So we have to ask this question. Who is our master? Now, in this passage, he defines that. He says God or money. But it can be other things. It can be personalities. We have a cult of personality worship in our culture, both religious and non-religious. And I will confess that the trap of many pastors and religious celebrities is this very thing. They presume their self-importance. There's a book on my shelf. I didn't bring it with me, and I'm not going to give it out because it's not written to you guys. It's written to pastors, okay? Here's the title. The Walk on Water Syndrome. You can guess what it's about. It's about pastors having this messianic complex and somehow we dictate for everyone how they should live. A master can be an ideology, a particular way of thinking that we are so focused that we become a slave to that mindset and we only see what we want to see and we wonder why nobody else can see what we see. Know anybody like that? It can be political, it can be economic, it can be religious. 
Think about our American history. One of the most tragic wars in our history was fought over the ideology of slavery. One group said, no, they are on equal par with us. They are made in the image of God. And the other said, no, they're part of that that cursed generation that Noah cursed Ham and they went south. I mean, they had religious reasons for it. But the cost was 620,000 lives in that war. The most tragic war in American history. That doesn't include the amount of slaves that died at the hands of their masters and those who sold them. But think about that. Think about 620,000 people dying over an ideology in the U.S. when the population was around 30 million people. It is staggering to imagine that. But that's the cost between two opposing ideologies. Now, it was two weeks ago I made this statement. I'm going to say it again, just in case you need to remind it. Remember I said no one owns the entire truth, including me? Say yes. Okay, repeat after me. No one owns the entire truth, including me. And again, you guys do not sound convinced. (laughs) But here's what happened. When I lock into not God and the kingdom of God and Christ, when I lock into an ideology, then I have tunnel vision. And when I have tunnel vision, violence will always ensue in some way, in some form. So, Looking at this last verse, this is our design. We were made to be like God. We were made to be made in the image of God. We're not designed for a duplicitous minor heart. It's not and both, it's either or. We can only have one master at a time. And God is our standard. So that's where I want to begin. The foundation, the kingdom of God, our focus, our anchor, call whatever you want. Seek first the kingdom. That's where we have to start when we deal with these lifestyle issues. Now let's back up to verse 43. Christ says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Direct quote out of the Old Testament. It's part of Leviticus 19 verse 18. But he let out two words because the Pharisees let these words out. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was left out. And when you study the law of Moses, what he was talking about was not sympathetic care, but actual care. That somehow we get movement from what we say and what we feel and what we think down to practical levels. And they gave illustrations in Deuteronomy. For instance, if you found a lost animal, you were to take care of it until the owner was discovered, and then you gave it back to the owner. It wasn't finders, keepers, losers, weepers. There's also a caveat in Exodus 23 verses 4 through 5. They were to do the same to someone who was an enemy. That if they found a lost sheep and found out it was someone they didn't like or an opposing person outside of the Jewish Jewish religion, they were again to take care of this animal as if it was their own and then give it back. Now, I want to remind us that um, what Christ is talking about here is personal relationships. Not what we call governmental law. So often we get into this passage and we start saying, oh, this has to do with war. That's a whole different subject matter that's dealt with at another place in time. What Christ is dealing with and talking about here is not an enemy soldier. 
It's someone who was, and for whatever reason, antagonistic. Someone who has written you off. Someone that you have written off. And later, it's why Jesus, when he defined who is my neighbor, talks about a Samaritan. There was long-standing hatred between the Jews and Samaritans due to several hundreds of years of a situation over mixed marriages. And in their Jewish culture, they would not talk to a Samaritan. They would not walk in Samaritan land. They would never do anything to help a Samaritan. But Jesus comes across this definition of being a neighbor as anyone who has a need. So what we begin to understand is that the Pharisees and the religious leaders did a perversion by omission. Scriptures were fully known, but only partially taught and practiced. Now, I know we never do that, do we? And yet, when you study most of history, both secular and sacred, how many times do we give only partial information to make it sound like and be like something that it's really not? We have to be careful that we don't spend our lives doing and seeking things that are primarily in our own self-interest. For our safety, for our comfort, for our pleasure, for our health, for our opinions. But we have to shift to this kingdom of God living. And we chafe under that because when we see what Christ says here, we know we cannot live up to it on our own power. And so the Pharisees said, well, we're going to pervert the text by omission. But they didn't stop there. They also narrowed the definition of neighbor to people they preferred and approved of. So not only did they distort God's intentions, but through omission, they said, you know what? Here's how we're going to defy our neighbor. Samaritans don't fit that title, so we do not have to love them. We can hate them. Because they're our neighbors. But then also we see a distortion by addition. You cannot find anywhere in the Old Testament where it says you shall hate your enemy. And so Jesus is talking about a massive kingdom of God shift where in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we really got to define two things here. One is love and two is enemies. I think enemies is easier. Think about your enemies. Think about someone that seeks to do you harm, that they don't like you, they hate you, they despise you on a personal level. Again, we often do this to war times because it excludes our personal involvement in this. We can talk about things out there rather than things right here. I remember being at a a pacifist conference one time and a certain man stood up And they were talking about what their denominational stance should be in terms of young men going to war. And this man got so angry and he shouted. He was red in the face. His words were violent, all in the name of you need to create this form of pacifism. I thought, wow, you know, it's easy to talk about it over there, but it's hard to practice here, isn't it? And of course, he divided the crowd into people for me and against me. And those that were against him, he didn't talk to. Jesus was getting very personal here. We have to understand that. And we have to understand that what he's talking about here is a shocking statement. When he says, but I say, 
the phraseology there, the word usage, he, he literally puts these words on par with scripture. It's not kind of like, well, here's my opinion. But when you look at the text and how it's formed, he says, listen, this is God's word. Now, when you think about love, there's four different words usually used. There's more than that. But the four that are usually used is one, brother to love. But we talk about friends. Two, love for family. Three, or romantic love. And four, God's love. And what we understand is that God's love may involve emotion, but it must involve action. That God's love is humble, it's sacrificing, it's a choice. And so along comes Jesus, and in the midst of these religious leaders who were proud, prejudiced, judgmental, spiteful, vengeful, all while masquerading as custodians of God's law, he says, you know what, you got it wrong, and here is God's intentions. Paul says this in Romans 5, 5 and verse 8. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Then here's the example. Be perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, sinners are enemies with God, Christ died for us. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? Then Jesus says this in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now let me tell you what love is not. I'm just going to make one statement. I can make more statements, but just let me make one. Love is not absolving the consequences of behavior chosen. So often we start getting the discussion about what it means to love our enemies. People say, well, we just should not bring any consequence to bear in their behavior, even when it violates civil law. A little over 10 years ago, October 2006, a man by the name of Charlie Roberts, who was angry at God for the loss of his first child, a daughter, in anger and grief, killed five Amish children and then took his own life. The forgiveness of the Amish community went viral around the world. That's one of the good uses of social media, by the way. And there was debates everywhere about how could they and did they really forgive? Uh, I wish Grover was here this morning. If you didn't know, Grover DeVault was one of the first responders on site with the state police when they were there. and We could have got some gained wisdom from that whole experience. But let me say this. If Charlie would have lived, this loving forgiveness would not absolve him from the justice in our courts. And sometimes we mix those two up. And I've heard many people say things like this. Well, if you're going to love your enemies, let them go. And so there's been some marriages that people have come to me and when a spouse would physically harm their partner, I'd hear things like this. Well, they made their bed, they need to lie in it. They got to love their enemy. I was in one situation where a marriage where one spouse deliberately had a mistress on the side constantly and he told his wife, you have to put up and shut up. And I remember her coming to me saying, listen, would it be loving if, I'm, I'm not going to divorce him because I love him, but would it be loving to say, you know what, I've had enough, I'm moving in with moms until you get rid of the mistresses. 
I says, no. I said, you got to hold him accountable for his behavior. See, the loving thing is not just to let them keep going and going and going because many times protecting someone from immediate consequences escalates greater harm later to somebody or to yourself. Now, let me give you an illustration. And this is one of the things that's often frustrating to me, but in my world of working with sexual abuse offenders that harm children in unthinkable ways, we know there could be consequences that would take care of the situation. And I'm not talking about capital punishment. But one of the ways is considered inhumane, so we put them in counseling because they can't help themselves, and then we dare declare them cured and we let them out, only to do it again. Some of the pedophiles across America have molested well over 400 kids in this revolving door of cure, and I can't help myself. And I ask myself, okay, do you realize that this is the loving thing according to some people, but how many kids do we sacrifice at the hands of that kind of ideology. In the addiction world, which I know many of you are familiar with, there's something called an intervention. And you know and I know interventions don't always go well. When you sit down and confront the person in their addiction and what it's doing to themselves and their family and their friends, they don't want to hear that and it doesn't look loving. And sometimes they say say things like this, well, if you would just love me and let me go and walk out angry. Now, I'm going to say a personal note here. When I think about this whole loving your enemy, I can say this. I can deal with people who want to harm me, okay? That's something that, that's, I don't like it, but I can deal with it. But I will be honest and say, if you come after my family, my wife or my kids or my grandkids, there's a whole new level of loving my enemy, and uh, that's what I struggle with. And I think about the nickel mine shootings. And I think about long term, the daily journey of forgiveness that was needed by these families. And it's so important because unforgiveness allows anger to grow to the point of committing violence against someone else. And we often justify it because we say things like, well, they deserve it. Remember we talked about last week with retaliation? It doesn't matter whether they deserve it or not. You have civil law, you got God's law personal you walk away so the question this morning is not who to love did you understand that this whole categorization loving your enemy really classifies everyone that you encounter in your life you love your neighbors you love your enemies but rather the question then is but how do we love what is the most helpful way What is love in terms of consideration of others? And you know, it's hard when people are mean, when people are impatient, when people are judgmental, when they're condemning, when they disagree with us and they're nasty about it. It's really hard to do that. But you know, for me, the larger question is this, inside our culture today, because you look at the amount of violence that is escalating over ideologies, and you look at how we treat each other with words and actions and how we destroy property. And literally, we are, we are killing. I mean, I'm told that in Chicago, there are more people that die than in Iraq in a war. See, the larger question I have is, why do we focus on the things that divide us? 
And why don't we focus on the weightier things that unite us? Illustration. This past week, I spent some time listening to an interview of a guy who has an organization that goes in to Bangkok and to Haiti to rescue children in the slave trade. Slave trade has to do with child prostitution. So when you hear me say that, that's what I'm talking about. And it's horrific. And he says that our workers usually can take two years and that's it. Psychologically, they cannot take going in and seeing what they see and having to deal with what they deal and working this day in and day out. They just need to walk away from it after two years because it's just, it's just that evil. Now, there's very few people that would disagree with stopping this evil. So I don't care who you are. You look at this and you say, you know what? This is a scourge in our world. Let's take care of it. So why don't we focus on things like that that can be productive? Rather than opinions and preferences that offend us and divide us, and then we, then we act not very loving. Now, the last couple of weeks, I've been busting on social media. Amen? <laughs> I'm going to bust on a little more. But I'm going to say something positive. Much of social media today to me is a circus. Let me explain. People accuse other people of things they are guilty of. There's nasty stuff posted. Some people say, well, I'm just doing the loving thing because somebody needs to tell them the truth. I'm like, really? Go visit them. Sit in their living room and tell them the truth. But here's my personal opinion. If you have to post... Okay, it almost sounds like it's an addiction. And for some, I think it is. By the way, if you're addicted, we have a great program called Discover Recovery. You can go in and they'll help you with that. If you have to post, why not post redeeming stories of faith, hope, and love? Why not use it as a source of encouragement and not a source of confrontation and condemnation? If you have an issue you want to confront, do so with a person in love. If you're a follower of Jesus, your Facebook page ought to be different than the world's Facebook page and all those other whatever pages there are out there. People of the kingdom of God tweet very differently than people who are not in the kingdom of God. Amen? Let me give an example. My learning curve is always huge every week because um, the older I get, the more I realize I don't know. And there's an example this past week of what I call a positive Facebook or whether it was Facebook or just social media, I don't know. But a husband posted a video that went viral about his wife and their unborn daughter. They found out their unborn daughter has a disease and I'm not going to pronounce it, but uh, she has no brain. So when she's born, she will die instantly. But she's living because the mother's living. They made a decision to carry this daughter of theirs full term. May 7th, she's supposed to be born. So that her organs can give life to another child that desperately needs them. And I thought, wow. I never looked at a pro-life platform in that way before that someone would actually endure this. 
Now, here's what she wrote at the end of the post, and he was just talking about this and praising his wife for making the decision because she's the one that has to carry this child that she knows will die. She writes, this is not over for us. We'll almost assuredly have doubts on it if we're actually doing the right thing or if we can even handle this. May 7th is so far away. Please continue to think and pray for us. Carrie and Royce Young. I thought, you know, that is a good use of social media. Think about the encouragement and the uplifting. And then think about how this, this little daughter of theirs will give life to other children. Now, I want to make one last suggestion here about social media. Pray more and post less. <laughs> Jesus said something like this. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't get into a dialogue of posts on whatever platform you use, but rather go to your knees and pray. Now, there is a reason why we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute you and we just don't love our neighbors. Jesus says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And what he says is this, this kind of love shows people that we are sons of God. Now, before somebody gets all offended and says, well, Jesus is being sexist because he didn't say sons and daughters, let me explain why he didn't say daughters. He's speaking to a culture. Culture understands certain things, whether we agree with it or not. And in their culture, the sons were the ones that inherited the kingdom, not the daughters. So he was being inclusive when he talked about sons in terms of men and women, but he was making a very declarative statement that is, it is the sons of God, it's the sons that have the inheritance of God. So this love that is so different, he says, okay, you're going to inherit everything that God has. But this kind of love, this loving your enemies, however you want to define it, however you want to look at it, will make people stand up and take notice. Like the nickel mine shooting. The world stands up and takes notice. And yes, some of the world sat back and kind of mocked this kind of love, saying things like this. I remember one commentator saying, listen, it's all fake. They're just shoving it down, not dealing with it, because it's impossible to forgive someone who shot your child. See, that's where the power of the Holy Spirit comes in, amen? amen? Now, the other statement he makes is this. He goes, okay, you love this way because people are going to sit up and take notice that you are part of the kingdom of God. And then he makes this statement. He says, blessings are given without respect or merit. That's for us. Sun and rain are things that are required for growth. Farmers know that. And if you think you deserve then you do not have an accurate view of sin. And if you think you know more, then you do not have an accurate view of God's wisdom. So he says, listen, this, this blessing, this cursing stuff, it happens to the good and the bad. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on me. And then he goes on to say, your love should go beyond the normal accepted version of love in your culture. Verses 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And of course, culturally, he's talking to a group that was despised and hated. They were considered enemies. And he says, you know what? Even your enemies love people that are like them. So what's the difference? In verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so he went outside the Jewish circle and said, okay, you know what? Those people you call enemies, they're just like you. But the kingdom of God people are very, very different. And if we're going to love, we have to have the power of the spirit. That's part of the point of this text. You cannot live with faith in yourself. Your faith has to be in Jesus Christ. I want to give a quote from Greg Groeschel, and then I'm going to close with um, really four statements. Greg Groeschel is the pastor of Life Church. You might have a Bible app called Life Bible. That's who made that. He's one of the largest online churches in the world. He's one of the largest campus churches as well. So they have a lot of people they minister to. Here's what he said recently in an interview. Addressing the issue of consumer Christians. He says, Christians say that they can't find a church that meets their needs. But that really isn't really the point of going to church. The church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. And I find it profound that a pastor who now is looking back at a very large megachurch, both online and in person, is saying, you know what? We're kind of catering to consumer Christianity here. People are coming in the larger interview. He says people are coming and they view church now as content, not relationship. So I'll tune into content wise on a Sunday morning, the preacher I like the most. But I'm going to avoid any kind of community of believers that move out into the world and love their enemies. So let me sum this up. I know I said a lot of things. It's kind of scattered, but I want to kind of collapse into the four points. Number one, we have to have a singular heart focus on God. That has to be intentional. That has to be deliberate. Hebrews says this, fix our eyes on the author and finish of our faith. That's verse 48. We are to be perfect like our, we are to be perfect like God who's in heaven. That is our focus. Singular heart focus on God. Number two, we have to have a grateful heart. A grateful heart understands the nature of our sin. It understands the grace of God and the absolution that he gives us, how he declares us righteous, but makes us righteous as well. He makes and causes us through his word and through his spirit that we end up encountering and doing good things. See, if you want to say that we're locked into an ideology, our ideology is the kingdom of God. That's our core focus. That's how we operate. And as a community, because nobody knows the entire truth, we collectively come together and try to figure out how we navigate this world. You know, I love the question that Francis Schaeffer wrote back in the 70s, and he wrote a whole series of books about this. It was, how then shall we live? And I think it's a predominant question that we should ask as Christians. I think it's what we talk about in our discipleship groups. But it's the day-to-day, how do we figure this out? 
And whatever you come up with, understand, you have to have that singular focus on God. And two, you have to have a grateful heart. Three, you have to have a generous heart. You know, I think our lives are an expression of what's going on inside. And so generosity has to become a lifestyle. We don't retaliate. We don't use our words to destroy somebody. We don't use our anger to abuse somebody. But we walk with people. Even in the midst of their consequences. We walk with people. They may cause us harm. They may break civil law. They may go in prison. But then we go in the prison and visit them. That's what loving our enemies. And again, it's beyond the emotion. Because think about this. When somebody seeks to harm us, emotionally what happens to us? We get defensive. We get wounded. We play the victim. But see, our response is always the same. We do the loving thing in the context of that. And we figure that out in community. Finally, four, uh, we need a praying heart. I mean, bottom line, Christ says that. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why do you think he says that? Well, generally, when somebody comes after us, we need to talk to somebody. And it's always good to talk with him first. You can talk with your friends. You can talk with other people. And they'll give their advice. And generally, we find people who will agree with what we want to do. (laughs) But he says, have a praying heart. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, can I just add this? I don't think he means pray for the destruction. Don't pray God strike them down with fire and teach them a lesson. You pray God help them to see Jesus. Help them to see Jesus. And you pray for yourself because we all know too well how blind we are to a lot of our own situations and circumstances. May God bless you this week. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to close with a song that really declares that uh, we have a God who is mighty to save. Amen? I'm going to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, we just pray in the midst of this context of this this kind of language that you give us. A whole lot of stuff goes through our heads. But what about this? And what about that? And The truth is that we need to walk in your spirit. We need to walk in your word. And we need to walk with each other and try to figure what this means. Um, I know today sometimes we talk about tough love. What does that look like? It's hard for us to walk away from allowing someone to experience their consequences. What does that look like? But we do want to honor you and thank you because while we were still sinners, you died for us. And you didn't walk away and you loved us with an everlasting love. And until we came around and responded, you were there patiently waiting. Thank you, Lord, for this. In your name we pray. Amen. Just before Jeff sings, since we're going to sing Mighty to Save, again, uh, I'm not that smart in terms of I don't know everybody here. And that's probably a good thing. But I do know there's some people here that really have never given their life over to Jesus. We're going to sing a song about how he is mighty to save. It's about his love that while we were sinners, that while you were a sinner, he died for you. And you can accept that as a gift this morning. 
So if you're here this morning, and this is our tradition, uh, and you would like to make that choice, you want to make a choice to follow Jesus and you haven't, I'm going to ask you to stand up and we're going to put somebody with you. They'll take you out and they'll pray with you to help you understand this. But I just want to really give that since we're going to sing this song. Is there anybody here who would like to stand and say, you know what, I I want this Jesus today? Anyone? Okay. Tabish? Yeah. I know Tabish. Tabish is already a believer, and he's just saying, you know what, this is how I want to live. Tabish is from, um, I guess it's Tabish. I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Tabish is from Pakistan, and he's over here on a limited visa waiting to get married. How cool is that? Is there anyone like to just say, you know what, I've been following darkness so long, I want to follow Jesus? Okay, we have this young man here. Just stand up. Over here's Greg. Can you get together? Just go to the back. Anyone else? Okay, just kind of go out with him as well. Someone else. Let's stand together and sing. By the way, why don't we just kind of give an applause for these two that accepted Christ?